This episode is sponsored by Standby for Places. If you're listening to us, you probably like old-timey stuff. And boy, do we have a podcast for you. Standby for Places combines the nostalgia of old-timey radio dramas with the excitement of live theater. Standby for Places puts out weekly episodes with professional actors performing some of the best classics, like your favorites from the Bard himself, like The Twelfth Night. And the delightful wit of Oscar Wilde's best stuff, like The Importance of Being Earnest. And it's not just the classics. In June, they'll celebrate Pride Month with some new LGBTQ plus plays, and I, for one, can't wait to see what they present. Want a glimpse behind the scenes? Their Green Room series gets the scoop on how it all comes together from the actors and creatives themselves. So go have a night at the theater without leaving the house. Or on a road trip. Or while doing chores. Check out Standby for Places on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. You're listening to Old Timey Crimey, crimes from the golden age of yesteryear. Now, here are your hosts, Christy, Amber, and Scott. Hey, it's Old Timey Crimey. I'm Christy. I'm Scott. And I'm Amber. And we are here this week with more historical true crime... I'm not going to say goodness, I'm going to say badness. Historical true crime badness, because the good old days weren't always so good. Before we get down to the dark and dirty business of history and crime, don't forget about our Patreon. That is patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey, and boy, is it hopping over there. Are you guys having fun over there? Yay. Okay, so people pay us. <laughs> I mean, so yay! You're jam right you there. Just- <laughs> right, and you just told us a fantastic, amazing story, <laughs> and you're all like, eh. I was really trying to amp it up. I, I've, I've got a lot of caffeine in me, so it's, uh, I'm a little, I'm trying to play it down so I don't go fucking nuts here, people. Okay, all right, well, I guess we appreciate that. But yes, yeah, Scott told us an amazing story uh, about a very, very interesting fella. Oh, this, this guy, he... He did some interesting things, especially right there at the very end. <laughs> and to say, and to say, like, like just just what he did at the end. To say it was like only slightly more amazing than the stuff he did before. Yeah, this. Let's, <laughs> let's not discount the shit he did before. He just up and vanished. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes. So that and. Our extra extra is coming out or will have come out already because this will be out in May. And I don't know time since we started fast forwarding, but um, that is uh, an extra special thing for our patrons. We we do monthly where we do a little something different than we do here on the the main feed. And (laughs) April's extra extra was a little experiment in uh, something that you might be hearing more from us uh, eventually, but we wanted to try it out over there and see how people liked it. It's along the same lines as what we do here, but a little something different thrown in. So yeah, it's, it's definitely $5 a month and you get all of those weekly bonus episodes 
as well as the big monthly bonus episode. So five for five right there. It's, it's, a, it's a spanking deal. That's what it is. And you'll also get a shout out at the end of the show. And if you want to give us your birthday, you'll get a shout out of the week of your birthday. So I'm already getting that birthday calendar going. So that all aside, it is time to talk about the New Orleans crime family. This is, of course, mafia time. I was, I was feeling very your- Norlinsy this week. <laughs> Yeah. It's still very Sicilian, even though it's in New Orleans. So I know I said that horribly. I tried. I'm not going to try again. I promise. Nolans. 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 So the organized crime in New Orleans was largely the Sicilian mafia. And really, actually, New Orleans is thought to be the birthplace of the mafia in America. Some sources say it goes back to the late 1800s, but there are some that say it started even like around the Civil War. So really, uh, we're, we're talking about the cradle of, of organized crime. Right here it is. The Mesopotamia, the, the cradle of civilization, right here, the cradle of organized crime in America. Yeah, that's what we've got. Don't trust anyone whose name ends in a vowel. So in October... 1890, we're going to start with the first recorded mafia killing, which was of police chief David C. Hennessy. So the chief and his captain that October evening, they were leaving the station a little past 11 p.m. They were walking home together and they stopped for some oysters at an oyster saloon. I can't think of anything anything more New Orleans-y than... It's, I've had a tough night. You want to go get some oysters at the Oyster Saloon? Yeah. Yeah, I do. <laughs> the, the captain reported we ate a half dozen oysters apiece and the chief drank a glass of milk. Ew. God damn it. Ew. The right? chief is a monster. <laughs> it's terrible. Why would you do that? My stomach curdled just reading that and then i had to type it and i nearly threw up you know what would go really good with this some lukewarm pork hmm so they they finished their their oysters and milk walked some more and parted ways and very soon after that the captain heard gunfire from around the area that the chief would have been and then he heard some more that he thought was the chief returning fire and it was thought to be five men who confronted the chief and, and shot at him. And I'm just going to do this bit verbatim from the captain's account of the incident that was, uh, that was in the Times-Picayune. And uh, warning, there's, of course, an ethnic slur in it. Bending over the chief, I said to him, who gave it to you, Dave? He replied, put your ear down here. As I bent down again, he whispered the word. What a horrible last word to say. He he died as he lived with racism on his breath. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you'd be surprised to learn that despite being shot 12 times, he didn't die right there. Oh, my God. (laughs) Holy shit. 
Uh, the wounds were announced to be very dangerous, but not necessarily fatal by a doctor who was wrong. Uh, wrong. There was a rupture in or near the pericardium, and boy, was I ever shocked to read that in an 1890 newspaper. I didn't know that they knew body part names like that. <laughs> we all know that the heart... I thought it was like... The, the heart is the vessel of the soul. The brain just produces fluids. That is very fair. I, I didn't realize <laughs> that they would know that either. The, the, the beady thing in your chest is broken, would be my guess, but... That is the membrane around the heart. He did die at the, ch at the charity hospital the next day. He was only 32, was survived by his mother, despite his young years and, you know, only having spent 32 of them on this earth, he did manage to uh, have had his own trial for murder in 1882. This is the police chief. Wow. <laughs> Impressive. Know it from both yeah. sides of the law. Yeah, there you go. So he and the chief of detectives at the time had been vying for the position of chief. There was a gun battle in the street. The chief of detectives was killed. Hennessy got off with a self-defense story. So that was his story, and he was sticking to it. I would also like to note that the mayor at the time was Mayor Shakespeare. <laughs> nice. Yeah, right? Did he have a co-mayor, Hemingway? <laughs> I, I just really want his assistant to have a cool name too. Oh, I would have loved that, especially since those are both names I've given to cats. So. Now, now <laughs> that's the, why I went there. <laughs> there are theories. There are theories that that Shakespeare didn't actually exist. That there was actually a mayor uh, Thompson, and maybe another, maybe a series of mayors. They think the mayor might have actually been a woman. Well, and that really? was actually my favorite theory about Shakespeare was oh. it was actually a bunch of women. I was it I was making a, a I was making a joke, Christy. I'm sorry. No. <laughs> it took me a second to catch on, but I got there. I got there. <laughs> and then I was very disappointed with myself that it took me that long. <laughs> <laughs> so the murder of police chief Hen Hennessy, the motive was said to be the fact that he had evidence regarding some black hand extortion schemes and vendettas between the main Italian families in the city. There were two of them, the Provenzanos and the Matrangas. Matrang Matrangas. And it seemed like he was pretty friendly with the Provenzanos from some accounts, but it also seems like he may have been helping out the Matrangas. It's hard to say. I kind of wonder if he was doing some double dealing and just, just trying to keep everybody happy or just trying to get some extra on the side for himself from both sides. I don't know, honestly. It's, it's, that, part of, it's that part of the world. I've heard it said before about New Orleans. I've actually heard the same thing said about Johnstown. It's so corrupt, it's breathtaking. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah, I bet we would feel right at home there. Mm-hmm. Now, in this general time period, the territory dispute between the two families seemed to be largely about trying to control shipping, specifically regarding fruit. That was the big business that uh, was, you know, everybody wanted to control. And the Provenzanos pretty much monopolized it until that point. In fact, several of them were listed as fruit importers or peddlers. Several more of them were listed as stevedores, who likely worked in the fruit import business. And the Matrangas were trying to muscle in on that. And we have all those names because all, a lot of them were arrested 
or, you know, all those, I guess, names and professions, they were arrested. And there was even a some local vigilante justice attempted. Ye old Batman. From, yeah, well, ye old Batman in this case was a young man named Thomas H. Duffy. And so this is uh, from the Times Picayune. The prevailing excitement caused a young man named Thomas H. Duffy to go to the parish prison and ask to see one of the accused, Scafidi. As Scafidi approached the bars, Duffy drew a pistol and shot him in the neck. Scafidi is said to be recovering. That is not a thing Batman would do. <laughs> no, you're right. You're right. They appointed a committee of 50 citizens to ad- advise the authorities on the matter. It was called the Committee of 50. So, Committee of 50. Clever. Real fucking clever. Thank you. Thank you. Not you, them. Not, yeah. 19 men were indicted, and in March, nine of them were tried. Some of these ended up in a mistrial. Others were acquitted, and there was a lot of speculation that these results were because of mafia bribery or intimidation of juries and witnesses. And those who had been acquitted and, and, you know, had hung juries were still put back in the parish prison because they had other charges against them. So that wasn't they weren't they weren't out in the clear and they definitely weren't in the clear because the committee of 50 called a public meeting. And that did not go well for some people. When you get 50 people together and they're angry about something, that's actually also called the mob. (laughs) So this from the St. Landry Clarion. Next day, the citizens, to the estimated number of 12,000, met at the clay statue and determined to lynch the prisoners. The the number swelled to about 20,000 before reaching the jail, which was broken open, and 11 of the prisoners killed. And I have their names here. It's a lot of vowels. Rocco Garacci, Peter Monasterio, Charles Trajina, James Caruso, Laredo Comites, Frank Romero, Antonio Scafetti, Joseph Machecha. All of them were shot in prison, and then Antonio Bagnetto and Manuel Politz were taken outside and hung from lampposts. Jesus. So, yeah, they killed 11 people, and that that, that poor Scavidi guy, he, he managed to survive the one uh, attempt to kill him, but not the second one, unless there was, I don't think there was more than one Scavidi in there, but... The other eight who survived hid in the prison. Some hid in the women's quarters, which in the paper was called the hotel portion of the prison. Makes it sound really nice. Yeah, it does. I'd like to go there. No, you wouldn't. <laughs> no, I wouldn't. <laughs> no. Well, one of them. One, one of these gentlemen, Charles Matranga, he managed to hide without even leaving his cell. After the lynching, quote, one of the deputies lifts, lifted up the mattress on one of the beds, and Matrenga was stretched out at full length upon the slats. He was covered with the mattress and the bed placed in order so that only a very thorough search could reveal his whereabouts. Clever girl. Yes, indeed. Uh, so he was actually there the whole time the mob was invading and was able to hear it from underneath the mattress. What's this brown stain oh, under your bed? <laughs> Oddly, most of the survivors seemed to be uh, Matranga and those who were his highest lieutenants who were in uh, the, the, the parish jail. So that seems a little suspicious. And there was 
there was some speculation that some in the lynch mob helped the higher up people or the people that they wanted to see survive escape the the vigilante justice of, of the lynch mob no one was ever charged for this and in general the press and the public didn't have a problem with what had happened they were like okay sure that well, that works for us there was a grand jury convened to investigate it and it called the assembled this grand jury called the, the people who had lynched people in jail several thousands of the first best and even the most law abiding of the citizens of this city wow yeah now as far as the mafia itself was concerned as far as public sentiment uh after this incident according to the saint landry clarion the mafia cannot flourish long in this country for when the ordinary courts of justice fail judge lynch is sure to step in and settle the matter uh, probably not very much but i think the, i think the saint landry clarion and this particular writer would be surprised to see what was going on like <laughs> 30 40 50 years later <laughs> damn that's that's a lot of crime yeah. going on people <laughs> yeah. This was the largest recorded mass lynching in American history. And if you're ready for this, I don't think you can be, but if you are, the whole thing was called the Who Killed the Chief scandal. No. Like that. No. It was written like that. Who Killed the Chief? Who Killed the Chief? I bet I his name is in a vowel. <laughs> an O, an A, perhaps an I. <laughs> And if uh, if any Americans, well, okay, the average American probably doesn't know a damn thing about this. Italians are actually pretty familiar with the incident, it being a mass lynching of, you know, people who came, many of them directly from their country. If Americans are familiar, it's only thanks to a 1999 HBO movie made about this that starred Christopher Walken. Also, nice. Who killed a chief? Hey. <laughs> Nice, nice blending there. Thank you. <laughs> and really, this whole event was what made Mafia kind of more of a known household name in the country. And that also resulted in tensions between the general public and Italian immigrants, which weren't great to begin with, getting even worse. And a st statistic for you, in the next 20 years after this happened... 40% of the victims of Southern lynch mobs would be Sicilian men, even though only 4% of the population were Sicilian men. Dang. A little on the disproportionate side. Yeah, a little bit. Just a little. So we mentioned Charles Matranga, he who hid under the mattress. He was uh, a stevedore for a fruit company and the head of the Matranga family, and eventually that family came to dominate the New Orleans Mafia activity up until Prohibition. He had been born in 1857 in Monreal, Sicily, and his family emigrated the very next year to New Orleans where they got big in the Mafia. By the late 1880s, they had over 300 members. The family did some racketeering, some extortion, had a saloon, had a brothel. You know, they, they, it was a, the, the family business, you know? 300 members. We're going to have to ask them how to get that, those Patreon numbers up. 
right? <laughs> I think you've got a good point. We need some mafia tactics up in here. <laughs> Should we start lynching people? Be a real shame if that modem burned down. <laughs> <laughs> so, Matranga, also known as Millionaire Charlie. I'm sorry, every really? time you say Matranga, my brain goes to an old movie I saw, an old Japanese film called Matango. About like oh. these people that get shipwrecked and have to eat hallucinogenic mushrooms to survive, and they turn into mushrooms. But please continue. <laughs> Absolutely, millionaire that, Charlie Matranga. Hold on, hold on. <laughs> I'm not ready to leave here. So, is it like the mushroom version of Reefer Madness? Because that's really what it sounds like. It's okay. So it's it, it really is. It's made by the same company that did like the Godzilla films, Toho Films, and it is it is seriously Gilligan's Island. But everybody's Japanese. And it, has mushrooms. And Well, they get on this thing. They, they get shipwrecked on this island. And they're, they're starving to death. And it's hallucinogenic mushrooms. And they see this one guy kind of like on a, another shipwreck there. And he's like part mushroom. And <laughs> he's and just like, yeah, everybody gets turned into mushrooms. Yeah. Okay. I'm sorry, Chrissy. That had nothing to do with anything. But I had to know. <laughs> Matango. Curiosity is a good thing. In America, it's called Attack of the Mushroom People, but in Japan, it's called Matango. All right. <laughs> <laughs> well, Millionaire Charlie Matranga, who was not a mushroom. A mushroom. <laughs> <laughs> I think not a mushroom might just be the episode subtitle. <laughs> you don't know that uh, for certain. <laughs> it, it could be who killed the chief. <laughs> No, it really shouldn't be that, Christy. It really, sh really shouldn't be. <laughs> and this is oh. me saying it. This is me know, saying. Right? This is me saying it should not be who killed the chief. I know. I I literally would not have said that if it weren't literally written that way. Like <laughs> that's that's what they called it. Matranga, not a mushroom. Yeah. Matranga, not a mushroom. He, after the lynchings and everything, he really controlled shit, and it seems like. He he knew what he was doing as far as keeping things quiet and calm. He does not show up in the newspapers in a bunch of different scandals and crimes and such. He shows up for standard family and community stuff, attending a baptism, leading a parade, donating to a cause. Honestly, he is like practically untraceable in the, in the newspaper archives we have. I looked in every single one and I'm like, no, this guy looks like your average American family man, a, a pillar of the freaking community. Uh, um, criminals of modern era, please take note. After you commit the crime, you shouldn't brag about it on Twitter or Facebook. Yeah, right. Or don't go ahead. Talk about it. Go ahead and be a dumbass. I don't give a shit. Makes it yeah. easier for the police, I guess. Yeah, seriously. You might as well just like, 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 do a do a live Facebook feed in front of the police office admitting your crimes. Yeah. At least make it fun. One of Matranga's guys did get shot at, but not shot, in 1913. That drew a tiny bit of attention, but it was seriously like a one to two paragraph item on page six or something like that. Like, it was... This guy knew how to keep a lid on shit. And so I... I crime family or not, I do have to commend him for, even if he was a criminal, at least he wasn't a stupid criminal. Got him points 19... there. Yes, yes. And in 1922, he decided to step back and hand it over to the next generation, 
Some sources say he handed the reins over to Corrado Giacona, but it seems generally accepted that he actually had Silvestro Carollo take over. Some newspapers and, and uh, accounts spelled the name Corolla. I decided just to go with Carollo, so I'm not constantly thinking about cars. And I love the fact name. that a lot of people went, what's your name? Sylvester Carolla. We're not calling you that. You're Silver Dollar Sam. Yes, yes, that was his nickname. Gotta love the Mafia nicknames. Mitranga would die age 86 in 1943. In the meantime, Silver Dollar Sam Carollo was basically... Some sources... The sources vary on who actually changed the gang into a real Cosa Nostra family. Like, this is real, like, Mafia, truly organized, organized crime, not just, like scattered feuds here and there and, and people not working together. And so he was born in 1896 in Terracina, Sicily. The family came to the U.S. when he was seven or eight and ended up in New Orleans. So uh, Silver Dollar Sam eventually became manager of a restaurant, would go on to own several restaurants and bars. He got married, he had three kids, and he also rose in the ranks in the mafia. One paper described him as a darkly men menacing fellow with black thinning hair and a long curving face. I like that description a lot. Yeah. But I also really like, what was it? Mi was it Millionaire Charlie and then Silver Dollar Sam? Like, ouch. Oh, good point. Seems like a downgrade. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that nickname is a diss. <laughs> well, it's possible that Matranga put Giacona in charge of shit altogether with Silver Dollar Sam as street boss, and he would eventually kind of work his way up even further. So it, it really is kind of unclear. And there was a lot of activity to manage as far as the, the crime in the town, the racketeering, the bootlegging, the gambling, the drug craft trafficking, and just hands in various other pots. So it was a lot, it's a lot of work, you know? It's, you gotta love your job if you're gonna live your job. I, I really want the people under him to be like Penny, Peter, Dime, Dave. <laughs> Bitcoin, Bob. Maybe it's a little bit too early for that. <laughs> Ethereum, soon, Eddie. Not soon. <laughs> soon enough, I'm sure. So in 1923, the bootlegging caught up to him, as uh, it sometimes would again in his future, and he went to federal prison for around eight months after stealing 89 drums of booze. Somebody's having well, a party. Yeah, the, the sentence was for a year, but he got off four months early. And this is a recurring theme in his life as well. Going to prison is a recurring theme. Getting out really early is a recurring theme. Now, there is this story that uh, in 1929 came around that... Al Capone was, was trying to muscle in on New Orleans and uh, Carolla had his guys, intim you know, intimidate some of Al Capone's bodyguards so that they would flee town or even not necessarily Carolla had his guys do it. But Carolla was so influential and powerful that he had the New Orleans police do it. <laughs> and but it kind of uh, there, there are several different reasons why that seems unlikely one of the reasons is that it, it does look like they actually work together at least a little bit later on. It, there was, you know, a, a whole list of people indicted for this big booze 
ring that we'll get into. And it was Al Capone in charge of it. And Corolla was one of the people indicted. So, and the press was all over Capone at the time. You know, he, he wasn't exactly hiding in the shadows. So you would think that there, there would be some press reporting somewhere on this, you know, meetup that went wrong between the two. But there wasn't, as far as I could tell. So, and in, also in 1929, it was, it was a very, um, this was a turbulent period <laughs> for Corolla. Uh, the police and the feds were trying to get a handle on all this gang activity in New Orleans because it wasn't just Corolla's mafia. There were a ton of other players and there's a lot, a lot of corruption and crime going on. And a federal agent, Clarence V.B. Moore, was arresting a couple of guys they suspected of dealing morphine and in the process of arresting them he runs his car right into theirs <laughs> and uh, so that if, i i think i think yeah it's clarence moore that's that's a bit of an iffy one in my opinion how so well i mean carola's uh, carola's arrested for shooting him and but man a lot of the new orleans cops like even even ones that weren't on the take, they testified that he was in New York at the time. You know, he still gets two years. So I, I honestly think this one is just kind of one that Corolla got pinned for, but he didn't actually do. Yeah, it is. It is definitely curious. Um, but yeah, Moore rammed his car into theirs, and when he goes to arrest them, Moore gets shot in the face, in the jaw. But he lived. If this, if if these stories that we're telling you or anything is that a lot more people survive gunshot wounds than we thought. Damn it. Yeah. A guy got shot in the neck and he survived. A guy gets shot in the jaw and he survived. Hell, the police chief got shot 12 times and he survived for another 12 hours. One for every bullet. <laughs> there we go. There was a problem. Yeah. Keep shooting so, him. So Just the doctor going 12 hours, 12 bullets. Keep shooting him. Oh, my God. No, I'm just putting it together, though. The extra extra that we did. How many axe swings and how long did he live? Yeah. Oh, no. Oh, no. no. I'm telling you, people, one and done. One and done. (laughs) The extras make them live longer. (laughs) Oh, no. It fills them with hate. It allows the universe's hate to fill the body and keep them alive. Okay. There's so. some son of a bitch that went through a wood chipper that's still pissed. There <laughs> was, was a manhunt for Carollo. He did skip town when he came back in February 1930. He got picked up. Now, Scott, you had one version, but I found multiple versions here. Uh, either he got off completely because there was no evidence. Or, as Scott said, the police testified in his favor. Or he got sentenced to two years for this. Or he got sentenced to eight to, eight to 15 years for this. Which also, I think this is a confusion of several cases that were happening around the same time. And so it must have been really hard reporting on these. Because you might get the details that, oh, Corolla was, say, sentenced to two years. And it's like, but for which crime? Christy, are you saying that sources vary wildly? Very wildly. Wow. <laughs> That gave me a little a little chill. Right on. Right on. <laughs> so then uh, at the end of 1930, he was arrested. In the paper, it's 
Oh, no, actually, this is, this is incorrect. I said in the paper he was said to be 33, but he was 54. But I had an incorrect date for his uh, birth year. I had it as 1876 instead of 1896 until I glanced back over my notes today. And I was like comparing with sources. I was like, wait a second. How'd that happen? Because that's a whole 20 years difference. So, yeah, he probably actually was 33. <laughs> Oops. And so he was arrested it was uh, this whole thing, again, these territorial disputes, especially with the bootlegging happening. There was a bootlegger rival, William Bailey. He was 28. And Corolla and his gang came after Bailey and a bunch of other guys after Bailey allegedly hijacked their booze hideout, taking thousands of dollars worth of liquor. So they shot him. He lasted a little while probably as many hours as he was shot, I guess, if that's the theme. And it, it said in the, this, there's some, some fun, just a little bit of fun old-timey gang language here in this newspaper account. One suspect arrested, Silvestro Corolla, was positively identified by Bailey as one of four men who late last night put him on a spot and poured a stream of shots into him from a chocolate-covered, nope, not chocolate-covered automobile. Nope. I like that better. I think that I think Milton Hershey needs to be called in for questioning. <laughs> it was a chocolate colored automobile. <laughs> and Bailey a was shot. A bunch on. of shooters. A bunch of shooters. All the shooters were under four foot tall and orange and singing. Hoompa loompa doopity doo. We are going to shoot at you. And as for how many times he was shot, it was either three or 14. Well, the answer is how long did he live? Exactly. That, that answers that question. That's confusing to me. Like, I could understand 13 or 14, but three or 14, very different things. <laughs> the fucking JFK assassination all over again. Right? Now, the thing about Bailey is, and a lot of these guys actually is the case, especially like mid-level mafia-type dudes. He had also been an informant. He had been arrested more than 20 times, but never once convicted. Hmm. That's odd. Yeah, that's a little suspicious. Now, Corolla was arrested, but he said, I have an alibi, and it is the best old-timey alibi. I know I'm using the word old-timey a lot, but it's it's getting super old-timey in here when your alibi is that you were out buying phonographs. Wow. <laughs> I went down to the five and dime to get the new Al Jolson phonograph record and some Fitzky's tooth powder. <laughs> yes. It was, That's when uh, Coca-Cola had real cocaine. Yeah, yeah. I'll <laughs> tell you what, man. While I was down there, I also got some number five mirror glaze. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know how clean my house would be if soda still had cocaine in it? Right. Uh. <laughs> I mean, that's I, how they kept their houses so clean before in the in the fifties or you, whatever. If you want to clean a little bit over here, I can get you some of that old Coca Cola. I know the recipe. <laughs> it's essentially Coca Cola with cocaine added. <laughs> I just want to say, my my new alibi, if I ever uh, get picked up for anything, is that I was out buying phonographs, and you guys will back me up on that, right? Absolutely. Yeah, there's a flea market that sells them. I'm there we sure, go. Somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> it 
so Corolla and his henchmen did go to jail, but it seems like it wasn't for the Bailey shooting. It seems like it was for narcotics charges at this point in time. But again, got out super early. Like their total sentence was cut in half because a federal judge said, okay, you've got all these smaller sentences piled up consecutively to stretch out into like an 18 month sentence. You can't do that. You need at least one individual sentence to be one year plus one day in order for the convicted person to go to federal prison. So he apparently, it seems like he got off entirely on the Bailey murder. I don't know. It's the papers were having a hard time keeping track. And when the papers have a hard time keeping track, that makes my job harder. So in 1932, he was already in prison when he was indicted as part of a raid that I, I mentioned earlier about that bootlegging ring. This raid cut over 100 men involved in this that was under the control of Al Capone who the whole idea was that they would have smugglers buy liquor in Canada, then ship it to Belize, and then send it to the Gulf Coast, so Mississippi or Louisiana, which would be why Corolla was involved in this, and from there put on trucks to be taken to interior cities. So indicted for that, never really saw whether anything came of it. And then in 1933... He got sentenced, okay, this is when they say, okay, he's sentenced for the shooting to the agent, shooting of Agent Moore, and it's 8 to 15 years. But it could have also been the sentence for an attempted murder of one of Bailey's compatriots, who they had chased down and beaten the night before the Bailey murder. You see how this is all, like, what the hell is happening and when? It's because you have, he has eight different cases against him at the same time. Right. It, do, it did get confusing doing the research for this. Hell, I bet his lawyer was confused. It's like a oh. fucking, the, like the, the criminal charges are like a game of fucking shoots and ladders. Yeah. No, you got to throw everything at him just to see what sticks, though. So, like, they know he's going to buy off a lot of people. He's probably going to get acquitted of a lot of this stuff. So you got to throw everything at him separately so it doesn't get thrown out of court. Yeah, because he does get convicted for something for 8 to 15 years, and he serves all of one year of that before the governor pardons him. Exactly. Damn it. Yep. So that's why they have to do this. You you charge him with all sorts of stuff. Believe me, they tried to do it to me. And you've got to see what sticks. <laughs> so it's after he gets out that a new racket starts up in Louisiana, and it's slot machines, which... The thing that was happening was there was a big crackdown on illegal gambling in New York state. And so they're looking for some other mafia ridden place where they can do this. Now, whether Corolla was big in this or whether he was actually in prison at the time, again, sources very wildly here, but one way or the other, it really doesn't matter because he can't keep his nose clean. He's back in federal prison just a couple years after he gets out to do more narcotics convictions. And the thing to remember is he's an immigrant. He came to this country at seven or eight years old. And so after all these things are piling up, he may be able to keep things 
clear at the local level as far as charges or get off easy and even at the state level when he gets pardoned by the governor. But at the federal level, he doesn't have quite as many friends. And at that level, they're like, we got to get this guy out of here. So they start working to deport him. But like I said, at the state level, he has a little bit of pull. His state representative in Louisiana, who tried to keep the deportation from happening with a bill that would have specifically naturalized Corolla. And he just, he, he didn't stop. He just, the bill would fail and he'd run it through again. The bill would fail and he'd run it through again. And finally, in 1947, even his state representative couldn't help him. And in 1947, it was back to Sicily for Silver Dollar Sam. He would continue his actions. He wasn't going to stop. This was, a, this, was, this was not just a job. It was a lifestyle. Uh, he did go on to run the biggest bar in town, back in, back in his hometown. And back in New Orleans, the next dude to run the town was Carlos Marcello. There are some who say that he was the one responsible for consolidating power and really making it, you know, La Cosa Nostra. And so that's what I said earlier, that some people are like, maybe it was Corolla, but maybe it was Marcello. And so it, it, it's unknown who should get the credit or blame for this, really. But one way or the other, Corolla is back in Sicily, and he's still doing his thing. And now he's really teaming up with a famous name, Lucky Luciano. Oh, my boy. That's my boy. We know him. <laughs> Good old Lucky he had also been deported to Italy. Actually, at the time that Corolla was deported, Luciano was in jail in Palermo because he'd been busted trying to slip around the deportation and still control shit via like meetings in Cuba. So once these guys get power, they just they they work so hard to keep a hold of it. No, they'll slip around any fences that you put up or over or under. And just, they do. They, they work together, uh, Luciano and Corolla, to basically do a lot of criminal shit in Mexico. And that seems to be sort of a waypoint for facilitating drug trafficking between Italy and America. So it's sort of like how they use Belize to slip around America's regulations for prohibition. Now they're using Mexico for that in the same way, but for narcotics. This episode is brought to you by the Hypocritical AF Podcast. The Hypocritical AF Podcast is a weekly audio and video show hosted by Albert Figueroa. Tune in every week for random conversation, random rants, and a wide variety of interviews where the conversations range from hysterical to appropriately hypocritical. The Hypocritical AF podcast is unfiltered, on the edge, and 100% organically built from the ground up. New episodes drop every Wednesdays on all streaming platforms, on YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out the Hypocritical AF podcast today. My name is Paige. And I'm the host of Reverie True Crime. Reverie means to daydream, but even daydreams can turn into nightmares. 
Join me as I tell you haunting and horrific reveries about missing people and senseless murders. I also interview survivors and people seeking justice for themselves or a loved one. New episodes come out every Monday morning, and sometimes you'll get bonus episodes on Thursdays. Wherever you're listening to this current podcast right now, you can find Reverie True Crime. So, Corolla does try to come back in 1949. Actually, Luciano had, had told him to come back. He's only back in the U.S. a year before they send him back to Sicily. Even over there, he's still getting into trouble. He gets tossed in jail for narcotics trafficking, for swindling. And even back in the U.S., even while he's still in Sicily, there's still some, some info coming out about him in the papers. In 1952, it came out that he had had a tax lien, or several, in 1945, uh, worth $62,000. Now, that's over $900,000 today. So oh, he, he big had- fucking surprise. Big fucking surprise they try to get him on a tax thing. That's how they got... Co- this is like one of the big, yeah. big things. Oh, go ahead, Christy. Sorry, I'm, 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 I'm ranting. Oh, no, it's fine, but they weren't. Oh, that was the thing. The, the way this came out in the newspaper was all because of one journalist who had this nationally syndicated column, and he was really known for digging up dirt about stuff in our political sphere. And the thing was that he had found out about this, but when he went to the IRS to try to get more information, they were like, no, no, we can't give you that information. We'll be fine. There's laws against it. And he's like, but he's a criminal, and he's not even a citizen anymore. And he, what rights does he have? From the IRS, and they were like, "No, nope, no, nope, we can't give you that information." So, really, like, wow! I like I yeah. thought I thought at this point in history, no, I'm not going to take it back. What I said about taxes, I, I think that, especially right now, <laughs> especially right now at this particular time of the year, but I don't, I don't like how the government kind of has the IRS there. They make the law so complicated that everyone's a criminal, and they can kind of throw anybody into jail on tax evasion at any time they want. But the fact that somebody like back in this era went, you know, that information is not yours to have. You can't have it. That blows my mind because it just seems like at this point in time, just like every information, every every little thing out there was like public domain and anybody could get it at any time. And you could go in and go, when was the last time Susie and Steve Watkins fucked? And you could like somebody would have that record someplace and you could get it and publish it. Yeah, it, it, it's funny how there were such protections over uh, a deported citizen's tax dealings. And meanwhile, like, people's names were published in the paper who attempted suicide, who were victims of sexual assault. And you could probably just call up any hospital in America and get information as much as you want on any patient without somebody saying the word HIPAA, you know, it, it, information was a lot easier to get. We we see we we think that information is easier to get now because of the internet, and in a way it is. But back then, there were so many fewer restrictions yeah. on it. Yeah. So yeah, the thing was that he had had these liens outstanding in 1945, and maybe this reporter would have been able to get some information on them if it weren't for the fact that it was discharged in 1946. Mm-hmm. 
So, and the same journalist, he seemed to really like digging up dirt about Corolla. He had this, like I said, nationally syndicated column, and he had actually publicized the legislative attempts to block the deportation of Corolla a few years prior, which was probably a big part of why they failed and the U.S. was able to deport him. Better watch out there, journalist. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I I actually looked him up. I need to... Oh, crap. I feel like I need to look him up again just so I can make sure I say his name because he, he deserves credit. So give me one second, and I'm sorry for the extra editing, Scott. Be, be a real shame if that uh, if that notepad you had there burned down, wouldn't it? <laughs> a little, yeah. little notepad in your hat. Just burn right to the ground. Give us $20. <laughs> well, I'm telling you, I was a reporter, and my reporter's notebooks uh, were my life. <laughs> All right, I'm going to start a new search on the... God damn it. You know what? Take your time. I'm just take take your time. I'll just look at some porn. (laughs) (laughs) Drew Pearson was his name. I ended up looking in my history and just finding (laughs) like typing journalist to get to his Wikipedia article. So yeah, he he did die in 1969, uh, but it was uh, from a heart attack. So but yeah, he he published the he wrote the Washington Merry Go Round. And he, you know, he basically really brought up a lot of, he spoke out about Senator McCarthy. Uh, He, you know, he brought up a lot of this, this organized crime stuff. Uh, He did have a little run in the mid 1950s when uh, he, he had been pretty, pretty liberal for a while but then he started making uh, attacks that California governor at the time, Ronald Reagan, had a homosexual ring in his office. I can so, believe that. I mean, I, but the thing is, is that it's it's one thing to say, OK, this is happening, but to, to use it as like a slur is a little less liberal, you know? Yeah, that's so, that's true. That's true. But I can believe, I can believe Ronald Reagan might have. I'm not saying he was gay, but I believe he may have had some homosexual experiences in his life. I mean, let's face it. He was he was part of that Hollywood scene, and if any place was was freer uh, with that lifestyle back in those days, it would have been that scene. Yeah, I mean, you're right about that. But the thing is, especially as regards Pearson, he he did refer to homosexuality as a bipartisan problem and a disease. Mm. That's all straight from Wikipedia, by the way. So, so yeah, so it, it seemed like he, he kind of had that thing where some people get uh, tend to get more conservative in their older years, I guess. Um, but anyhow, this this is not the Drew Pearson show, so. Um, maybe it should be. <laughs> but maybe not considering his later feelings. That's so. true. That's true. <laughs> um, and okay, so yeah, so there's all the tax stuff. In 1963, in the articles written about him, he was still ranked number 34 in international narcotics violators. <laughs> wow, way to go. I know, right? Uh, in 1969, his wife of many years passed. I'm assuming that when he got deported, she went to, I don't know for sure, because, I mean, they did have three kids still here. They, they were, you know, um, in their, like, 20s, but I'm not sure. So it's, it doesn't really, it's not clear anywhere. 
But after 23 years of exile with a break here and there, he comes back to New Orleans in February 1970 because Carlos Marcello, who is in charge of the family, really needs some help getting everything in line and getting, you know, the right people installed at the top. And so Carola slips in through Canada. Now, the thing is, is that even after all this time back in Italy, he still had some ties to the United States. You know, his family, he spent so much time here. He got social security checks from here. Wow. That actually pissed me off. <laughs> he had been rece- the, the gun running, the prostitution, the, the drugs, the booze, the murder. That's fine. That's so but do not collect Social Security. Well, no, it's the fact that you've got the, the taxes that he gets, you know, wiped off the slate and then still manages to siphon money off. That's, I think, what, what bothers me just about that particular situation I mean, already you probably have him not paying taxes on a lot of stuff because I just imagine that a lot of organized crime stuff is done under the table for some reason. Nope, <laughs> all above board. <laughs> Jesus Christ, are you trying and to so, get us killed? <laughs> there's a lot of taxes not being paid already. And then what he is charged taxes for, he doesn't pay. And then he still manages to get money. So there's a lot of hardworking people who are paying their damn taxes who haven't been exiled to Italy. You know, and, and he's basically taking money out of their mouths. So why the money is in their mouth, I don't know. But that's unclean. Don't do that. <laughs> You're going to get COVID. <laughs> he had been uh, re- receiving Social Security checks since 1961. So for nine years, he, he, he got over there and he was like, it's about that time. I think I should start collecting Social Security. And where's my AARP magazine, damn it? It's kind of impressive, actually. Like, don't yeah. you think, like, when, when he filled out the application, he'd be like, it seems that this man shouldn't be here. Like, it really, he, he was good, I think, at getting around bureaucracy and it slipping through cracks. And he just was lucky sometimes in that respect, too, that, that they just didn't pay attention or he fudged something on the applications or whatever. So, yeah, uh, he, that did come up when he was indicted for illegally reentering the United States, but apparently as per usual he got away with both he did die that very same year on june 26 1970 at age 74 which might have been how he got away with it um or there were one or two sources that said he died in 1972 now the date on his grave is 1970 but i think it would have been interesting if his family faked his death right up to the name on the gravestone in order to keep him in the us i'd be totally okay where what happened to silvestro well he just turned into mist and disappeared <laughs> i can imagine this whole funeral where everybody's just winking at each other like lucille bluth exaggerated winking at each other you know <laughs> they're like doing the eulogy and they're like Oh, Silvestro was such a great man. Wank. And we will all miss him so wank. Anyone else notice the priest looks a lot like Silvestro with a mustache? <laughs> so, yeah, that, that's my theory, honestly. I think, you know, they, they were just trying to keep him back in the U.S. And, and they, I think they faked his death. I have no other proof, but I think it was, it's funny. And so that's my headcanon now. And, yeah, yeah, that's how it goes. I say we dig him up. And we test the the corpse. I don't know how we could test it for like just two years, 
maybe there's a freshness seal on the coffin. I don't know. And if that freshness seal is broken, you are in trouble. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> it says here, do not open till 1972. So we know. <laughs> now, uh, Corolla's son, Anthony, was in his 40s when his dad died. Uh, and he kept up the mafia life and eventually became the boss, probably around 1990, and then would die in 2007. So that is what I have on Corolla and the New Orleans crime family. Do you guys have anything I missed? I don't think I do. No, no. I think you got, I, I think the only thing, like, it was, the only thing I kind of caught extra on this was I was surprised at how vicious some of the cops were uh, towards, uh, towards, the, uh, towards the gangsters. There, there was a uh, there was a situation where um, this was whenever uh, the like uh, Capone's men, uh, Ralph Capone's men, his Al Capone's brother, uh, he the cops uh, disarmed Capone's henchmen. Now remember, they're disarmed, and then broke their fingers. Well, that was the story. That was told about uh, the supposed attempt by Capone to, to muscle in on the New Orleans ter- territory, which may be true. Yeah. But it seems like a lot of a lot of evidence points towards it being apocryphal. But who knows? I mean, it, it, it's if it, honestly, if if the lack of newspaper coverage, I think, is what convinces me, because if you're a mafia dude in New Orleans. And you managed to send Capone's men scurrying away through through your influence and your dealings. I would make sure that got in the papers, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah, you're right. Some crimes, yeah, some crimes you don't want advertised, but some crimes you do. This That's is true. This is a nice, you know what? Come to New Orleans, you leave without your guns and without the ability to pick your nose. <laughs> So yeah, it could it could go either way, uh, but that that I found definitely an interesting one of those sort of maybe it's true, maybe it's not cases of, of, of stories we get from way back when. Now, this one was a little bit shorter, so I have a couple of things uh, I would like to give to our readers. One of those things is some mafia nicknames. Uh, these are always delightful, and I picked out some of the best. This is from MafiaHistory.us. Uh, we have Fifi. Oh, really? That's a mafia yeah. nickname. <clears throat> it is. Who can take that seriously, right? Uh, we were talking about money uh, nicknames. Well, you know, Millionaire Charlie, Silver Dollar Sam. How about Charlie Four Cents? Damn, <laughs> Johnny I O U five dollars. Charlie, I'm broke. <laughs> uh, Amber's uh, f- mafia nickname is she had one, the firebug. Ooh. Yes. Uh, there's a lot of cockeyed in there. Uh, there's cockeyed Joe, cockeyed Nick, cockeyed Sam, cockeyed Phil, cockeyed Freddie, and cockeyed Louie. It's a whole string. Uh, Frankie Hot Dogs. Gene hmm. Harlow. What? <laughs> Yeah, like Gene, the spelled the male way, G E N E Harlow. I'm, I'm, I don't know anything. My guess is very blonde. Yeah. Or yeah. Great Lakes. 
<laughs> He's got some killer gams. Killer gams. So, uh, greasy thumb. <laughs> Old stank finger. <laughs> Old stank finger. Joe Bananas and Johnny Bananas. Of course. Two different ones. Uh, uh, while we're on the food theme, Johnny Sausage. Man. Wonder what he was known for. <laughs> right. And uh, Louis Lump Lump. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> yep, yep. He's full Louis of Lump tumors. Lump. Steve the Human <laughs> Taglione. <laughs> and uh, Albert Anastasia, who I feel like we, we might need to hit it at some point, he had several nicknames. The Mad Hatter, the Earthquake, the One Man Army, and my favorite, Lord High Executioner. Ooh, there's actually there's actually uh, there's a New Orleans Executioner. I'm saving for a tiny. Ooh. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm really digging this guy. Uh, I'll give I'll give everybody kind of like just a nice little nice little hey, how's it going? Uh, there is th the reason the reason I I kind of picked the New Orleans crime family. I had actually intended this to be the tiny, but then I found out about the other one and like really changed it around. So upcoming, we're going to find out about Louis Congo eventually in one of our Patreon episodes, who was a freed slave in New Orleans who became an executioner. Nice. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. Louis Congo yeah. was the guy's name. So uh, look for that in... Maybe a month or two in, in on the Patreon side of things, but it was I found the Louis Congo story incredibly fascinating. I just found you know this week's Didarici. I found that even more fascinating, so I went with that instead. <laughs> yes, that was. <laughs> and uh, other mafia nicknames. I pity the fool who gets the mafia nickname Mister T. Yeah. Can see that. I mean, that's that's a pretty simple nickname to get. Your it is, just... yeah. It's just funny in 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 retrospect. Yeah. <laughs> An absolute classic, Mickey the Wise Guy. Oh, there you just won the mafia lottery with that one, right? Yeah, absolutely, Mickey the Wise Guy. The, you know, there's a movie Wise Guys. Heck, you you win, you win. Yeah. No uh, more callers, mustache... please. Well, I've got a couple more for oh, you. Shit. Mustache Pat. <laughs> I, I don't like that. Neither do I. That's what's so horrible. It's good. Uh, speaking of so horrible, it's good. I think this one's actually so horrible, it's bad. PD Pumps. Oh, no. I don't like it. No, neither do uh -uh. I. Uh, mm -mm. I'm a little uncomfortable. Did he team up with Mr. Sausage? <laughs> Maybe. Willie Potatoes. Okay. I can see that one. I'm, a, I'm kind of okay also, with old Willie Potatoes. Also teamed up with Johnny Sausage. Well, I feel like Willie Potatoes, they're like, that man's got some big old potatoes. And, and man, are you saying his <laughs> yeah. testicles are that big? No, they're that dirty. It's <laughs> 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 and finally, uh, I think uh, this guy, I don't know, maybe he spent some time in Britain or something. I have no idea, but Tony Teabags. <laughs> Uh, well, there it comes now, doesn't it? Yep, yep. So, uh, and then I have, I've just been collecting newspaper stuff. So do you guys want a couple of old-timey newspaper bits? Yeah, let's do it. A little, yeah. bit of, a little bit of extra here for our listeners. Sure. Yeah. 
So this one was quite harrowing for this poor young lady. And this is from uh, Lewistown, PA in 1860. <laughs> and uh, the headline is definitely an attention grabber. A young lady completely stripped. Yes. All right. Everything, everything about that sentence was good. <laughs> it was not good for her. And it's not what you think, people. So on the Indiana and Cincinnati Railroad, a pleasure party rode a short distance when they alighted and stood around on the small platform waiting to see the cars move before leaving for the woods. Just as the train started, the skirt of one of the young ladies, who happened to be standing close to the train, caught on a nut on the side of the cars, throwing her from her feet. Very fortunately, the train was moving quite slowly at the time, or the consequences might have been more serious. As it was, she was pretty roughly used. A stout man in the party, seeing her... Why did they have to insult him? Seeing her condition, at once raised her in his arms and pulled with all his strength, endeavoring to tear her loose. But the skirt was both strong and firmly fashioned, and not until all her underclothing was pulled from her body and her dress torn to shreds did he succeed. Why is that turning me on? <laughs> all this transpired while the train was moving a distance of 20 or 30 feet when the conductor saw the danger and instantly checked its motion. Indeed, the girl was not entirely released until the train had stopped. After the excitement of the moment had passed, it was discovered that the soles of both her shoes by the resistance she had offered the train, had been completely stripped away, leaving the uppers upon her feet. Strange to say, she escaped any serious injury. She was immediately encircled by a number of her female friends' solidarity, who conveyed her to the village where her wants were properly attended to. And I imagine her wants were clothing! Right? That's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> but well, good job, stout gentlemen and lady friends. Yeah. Right? Some real heroes in that story. This is a weird one from, uh, it's regarding Mississippi. Uh, well, okay, I have Mississippi regarding Indiana, actually, 1858. Marriage valid by mere agreement. A case has just been decided in Indianapolis by which it is declared that marriage in Indiana requires no formalities to make it legal except the mere agreement of the parties that it is a civil contract only and differs from other civil contracts only in this, that it cannot be dissolved even by mutual consent. Wow. So they're saying you can get married just by saying, hey, we should get married. Let's get married. Okay, we're married. But you cannot ever divorce. <laughs> That's a nightmare. <laughs> uh, There's this always was Aqua a... Tafana. Yeah, <laughs> Aqua Tafana. <laughs> Oh, takes care of bad husbands. So this was a story in 1930 about uh, a little boy who had a little adventure. So, stolen boys bring less in the underworld market than stolen automobiles, Mrs. O.S. Garretson of Burbank learned yesterday, and was grateful. For the Garretson family car is missing, but six-year-old Fred Garretson, stolen with the car, is safe in the family home. Mrs. Garrison went calling on a friend and left Fred sleeping in the car in front of the home. When the call was ended, the Garrison automobile was missing. Likewise was Fred. Frantically, Mrs. Garrison searched the neighborhood and finally found her six-year-old ho hopeful sound asleep in another car parked two blocks away from the Fane home. Fred didn't know what it was all about. He hadn't seen any man, hadn't felt anyone lift him from one car to another, but someone must have done it, he averred shyly. And there's a picture of him 
uh, I'll put this up on the social media. He's sitting, he's in overalls, legs crossed, little smile on his face, toe-headed little boy. And the the subhead on the picture is, can a guy get some sleep? Seriously. <laughs> so yeah, the, the thief stole the car, realized he had a little boy in the car. So he picks him up and he's like, where should I put this? Oh, there's another car. I'll just put it in this other car. <laughs> and then moves on with his life. This was a, uh, a gentleman who married a young lady and had some regrets. From 1930 also. William Kanipa, 60 and wealthy, thought he was marrying a sweet young thing when he wed Delphine Diaz Velasco, whom he met and wooed in a whirlwind courtship in old Mexico. She told me she had never been married before, Kanipa told Superior Judge Walter Guerin today when questioned in his suit to annul the marriage. Well, had she? queried the judge. Humph, rejoined the man. Had she? Why, the day after the wedding, she came home with 12 children for me to take care of. Had she been married before, you ask? I'll say she had plenty. Yes, I guess you've had 12 good reasons for annulment on the grounds of fraud, ruled Judge Garen. Dang. Wow. How do you hide kids? Like, I don't know how, like, I, I don't have 12, but, like, I don't know how I would hide the fact okay. that I've had children. Here's what you do. You get all 12 of the kids. You chloroform them. And you dress them up in gnome outfits and just sprinkle them on the lawn and say that they're your sleeping gnome collection. Oh, my gosh. That is that. That's one way. This is another marriage gone wrong in Philadelphia in 1930. Also, Mrs. Elizabeth Attilo, 40, killed James Cassidy, 48, today when he called at her home to tell her he had married her 18 year old daughter, Rose. The girl what? who had to come. All right. So just, just to finish it off, the girl who had accompanied Cassidy collapsed. So James Cassidy was 48. He married young 18-year-old Rose Attilo. Uh, they came to tell Rose's mother, who was eight years younger than the gentleman, and Rose's mother killed him. Damn. Damn. Here's one that'll make you laugh and then cry. It's uh, 1952 in the Franklin News Herald in Pennsylvania, but it's a, it's a nationwide report coming out of Spokane, Washington. Burly policeman era ends. The days when 200 pounds was the prime factor in considering police applicants apparently are gone. V.A. Leonard, chairman of the Department of Police Science at Washington State College, says intelligence and scientific training come first now. Hmm. Hmm. That went by the wayside. <laughs> so, uh, this is the cook who wrote too well out of Hollywood. Ken Murray, the screen comedian, needs a cook. He wants one that doesn't know how to write. Murray's last cook, Frank Connaught, was able to write. In fact, he wrote so well that Murray sometimes called him from his scullery duties to aid in autographing photographs of Murray to be sent to admiring fans. Cannot, it seems, just got the habit of signing Murray's name. So tonight, he was in the county jail with forging Murray's signature to checks for amounts in excess of $500. <laughs> yeah, always make sure your help's illiterate. <laughs> this was a weird one. I'm not going to read the whole article. I'm just going to try to give you the gist because I want to try to look more into this. I don't know if I'll find anything or not. But this is in 1903 in Missouri. 
And it's about a mob killing two people. They kill a constable and a preacher in Carruthersville, Missouri. So the preacher was actually part of a sect, and I'm going to go ahead and say cult, called the Sanctified People. And the constable was the constable of the town. So the mob killed them both because, so uh, Malone had been doing his thing. And in the process of his preaching and proselytizing, he picked up a lady and she was becoming his companion. Her name was Mrs. Frill. And uh, yes, that means she was married, but had recently left her husband. But people did not like it that he left his wife and these two were living together. And so his wife objected vigorously, as the article says. He said, nope, she's, just, she's, she's insane. She's nuts. Put her in jail. And they did put her in jail. And that, you know, him saying, my wife is crazy for saying she doesn't like me living with another man's wife, caused the town to just go bonkers. And so they have the constable goes to arrest the preacher. And it says because of the lateness of the hour, he, he arrested the preacher and the, the woman he was living with. The constable brought these two to his home instead of to the jail. But the town caught wind of this. The constable opened the door. The mob shot him dead, rushed into the house, dragged the preacher out and like the, the woman is following after, but there she's not doing any good because the preacher is taken out into the forest and there he is shot. Neither of the women, not, neither the constable's wife or the preacher's lover had any wounds. They weren't, they weren't harmed at all. So it was just, it, it was just this insane thing. It's it, it not explained why the constable was shot by the mob, but it is believed that he was either mistaken for the preacher or the mob was angered because the constable took the couple to his house after arresting them. But it's a bonkers story. I really want to look more into the sanctified people and find out if it's like a cult. Or do you think like the constable like took him back to his house? Like, all right, let me, let me watch. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe. Uh, so this is the... There's a section, and I've been looking at these in newspapers. It's, it's in, the United Press puts the, put these on the wire back in the day called the Telegraph Tabloids. And they have little bits that can be sometimes mildly amusing and weird. Like, for instance, in Los Angeles. Did your wife tell you to leave her? Judge Summerfield asked Harvey Grant, seeking a divorce. No, not exactly, Judge, but she hinted at it rather strongly. I came home one night, found the door locked, and my pajamas hanging on the outside doorknob. That would do it. <laughs> uh, this is a pretty good, pretty good rule. Um, in Chicago, another Telegraph tabloids, there's a law against it, and what's more, you might take cold, Judge Joseph McCarthy declared as he fined a man for parading in a derby and nothing else. Well, yeah, that's that's called having a good Saturday. <laughs> yeah. So that is my my Telegraph tabloids, I guess. <laughs> it's my old timey <laughs> newspapers and my mob names and Corolla. And, you know, we, we I think that was that was a fun time. That was some interesting stuff we delved into and we got to 
at the very end, right around to all the different times, learn about all the weird shit that people were doing in the old timey times, which they were doing some weird shit. Look at you doing the extra credit. They <laughs> do weird shit. I was once kidnapped by a man wearing nothing but a Rastafarian hat. That and sounds was, right for some reason. It was <laughs> lovely, actually. Um, but Jesus. like weird things happen all the time. They just don't make the newspapers now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So yeah, that's that's all my stuff. We have a shout out for a new patron. Um, do you guys want to try this? Make it make it epic, all three of us together. Let's do or it. Or sort of in sequence. So uh, I'll start, then Scott, then Amber. Okay. All right, Joel. Joel. <laughs> Thank you, Joel. Welcome to the Patreon and. We have a special bonus shout out to Banjo, who's a good boy. Who's a good boy? You're a good, boy. good boy. Good boy. Such a good puppers. Good I was talking about Joel. Oh. <laughs> you guys can talk about Banjo. Joel's a good boy, too. <laughs> so thank you, Joel and Banjo. We love you both. And welcome to the Patreon. We hope you're enjoying those over 70 uh old tiny crimeys as well as all the extra extras we have so yeah that is uh, um you know rate review subscribe facebook twitter old timey crimey that's the usual you know so and uh the oh i guess i should mention there will be merchandise with the very the new logo appearing on Redbubble that should be there by the time this airs if i get my lady button <laughs> so I've received word that there are people who want to buy it, so I need to get that going. So, so yeah, that's all my bullshit. What are you guys up to this week? Uh, I actually just got a Robinhood account, so now I'll be able to buy fractions of stocks. I, I got this weird feeling, <clears throat> and it's really nothing more than a feeling, that the Tesla stock is going to split again. So I can't really afford. I, I could afford to, but I don't want to buy one entire share of Tesla because God's damn, that shit is expensive. So I'm just out there buying fractional shares of Tesla now. Yeah, I do like the fractional shares. It, it makes it a lot more accessible to, you know, the, the average person. I'm actually looking to see. I did buy some fractional shares of Tesla. I have 0.2 shares of Tesla. So if that splits, I'll have 0.4. Yeah, yeah. I'll tell you what, it's, it's fantastic. Right now, you should be looking to Tesla. Uh, Neo with an I, N-I-O, Sunworks, and Renasola, S-O-L. That's that's my stock trading tips for this week. Okay. And amazing. Even those 0.2 shares are worth $146. Right? What the hell? Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So, Amber, what are you up to? Um, I, I have a lot going on this week. Uh, I'm going to be buying a, a T-shirt with our logo on it as soon as they come out. Um, <laughs> no, but I have... Like stuff with my kids. My oldest is taking a, her uh, test for her license, and then has prom. So uh, yeah, we've we've got a busy week. What about How you? Exciting. Um, well, in eight and a half hours, I have an appointment at the pain management clinic, so that should be fun for my back. And well, they'll send me on to whatever the next step is. So. Yeah, that's that's fun. Um, and yeah, I'm just I'm catching up on appointments. Like I also have a dentist appointment this week. I'm going back for my allergy shots finally, so I can stop feeling the way I'm feeling. 
because this this allergy season is not so. And yeah, that's pretty much that's that's my deal this week is appointments, and uh, I'm also working on uh, getting my cross stitch and embroidery and black work patterns up on Etsy. Uh, I've been slow about it, but it does take some time to compile everything and get everything ready. But yeah, I'm getting those up on Etsy and I'm working on finishing one that I'm very excited to finish because it's actually, it's a bigger version of one that I did last year. It was like my very first quarantine cross stitch project. And, but I only made it like three inches tall uh, because I was just trying it out. And so like, I was like, this is pretty, but it's so tiny. And so I made a bigger version of it and it's going to be, I think, pretty, pretty gorgeous. So I'm very excited to finish that up. So yeah, that's are, you, are you telling us that you're a size queen? Apparently I am. Yes. <laughs> Apparently I was like, this is, this is just too small for me. I'm going to Goldilocks this shit. So there it is. So yeah, that's what I'm doing. And patrons, we hope you have a wonderful uh, weekend as it's coming up for you. If you're listening to this on the day of and following week, and, uh, you know, thank you for listening to our filthy words. We appreciate it so very much. Did I say patrons or did I say listeners? Patrons, but, you know, they should be patrons, shouldn't they? Yes. yes. Shouldn't oh, the they? patrons, and, but the patrons and the normal listeners, too. Uh, you know, we, we thank the patrons a lot. So I already, everybody, everyone in the world, have a wonderful week. Thank you for listening to our filthy words. And bye. 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 My sources this week are Thomas Hunt on the American Mafia, Larry Henry on the Mob Museum, Justina Nystrom on 64 Parishes, Wikipedia, uh, several newspapers via newspapers.com, thank you Chris Garcia, Ronald Rawson on National Crime Syndicate, Dexter Babin on Louisiana Mafia, and MafiaHistory.us. My sources are NewOrleansPast.com, Wikipedia.org, Mafia.Wikia.org, mob-who.blogspot.com and findagrave.com My sources this week are mafia.wikia.org mob-who.blogspot.com and the Lewiston Daily Sun by Jack Anderson Music